Thank you, Preston. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We are in the middle of our series on the book of Romans, and these five chapters thus far have laid out with forceful clarity that we are saved by God's grace as it is activated through faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We are not saved. We are not, we, our sins are not forgiven. We are not declared righteous with God on the basis of any works or anything that we can do, but rather on the basis of what God has done. God became flesh and dwelt among us, as Scripture says, so that as a human, as the God-man, he could pay the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid it all. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All those scriptures just make crystal clear, and they're consistent across the New Testament, of how we are saved. And the argument of Romans 1 through 5 lays this out line upon line. And chapter 5 closes with these words. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. So then... As through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then if you turn to chapter 8, verse 1, you would read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the argument of Romans 1 to 5 flows straight into Romans chapter 8. So why do we have these two chapters in between? Romans 6 and 7. They answer objections that I believe Paul dealt with as he taught these truths city by city, church by church over the decades. And the Spirit of God had him write down for us in the book of Romans the same truths that were taught everywhere in the New Testament world. And those truths uh, give rise to certain objections that people might raise. For example, take a look at at, uh, chapter 6, and and the objections are found in certain questions. Look at 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace might increase. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Look at verse 7. 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Look at verse 13. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause for of death? For me, look at verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa, Gary, that's a lot of questions and a lot of issues. But these are issues that Paul was dealing with as he, was te- as he would teach these truths to the churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And so he lays them out for us. These objections in Romans 6 and 7, the mind, the flesh, the law, and then in chapter 8, the spirit. So, because grace, pure grace, can be distorted and misunderstood. I had a friend in college, and I'll never forget this conversation. It was the strangest conversation. He said, Gary, Gary, sometimes I just want to cuss. But... I stop myself because I know it's it's not right as a Christian. But then I think, well, people will think I'm under law and don't fully understand grace because I stopped myself from cussing. So I just go ahead and cuss to show that I'm not under law, even though I don't want to cuss anymore. And at that point, you get an excedrin headache. But by the way, he's he's a lawyer today. Some people, Phil, are just under law. So, at any rate, here's the deal. Once you accept, uh, and my apologies to the several lawyers who are here. I I really didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Here's the deal. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, Satan has lost your soul forever. Sin no longer has authority over you because the wages of sin have been paid. By Jesus' death on the cross. So Satan has lost you to grace. You get that? He has lost you to grace. The only strategy he has left is to take the concept of grace and distort it. And he will distort it into maybe one of the extremes of legalism on the one hand or license on the other hand. Uh, If Satan were to attack your joy through the extreme of legalism or some sort of performance-based relationship with God, He will do that because that will rob you of your joy. Because you enter into a relationship with God where you say, okay, thank you, I was saved by grace, but now I want to continue and earn your love by works. And some of you grew up in performance-based homes and have a hard time grasping that you have been saved by grace and God can't love you ever any less than he does. So that will rob you of your joy. But Satan will drive us into the extreme of legalism. That will be one distortion of diluting grace. But the other distortion is just as damaging. And that's the extreme of license, which refers to the wrongheaded thought that we see in Romans 6. Romans 6, the book of Galatians deals with the legalism question. Romans 6 deals with the license question. Because I'm under grace, I can live however I want to live. God doesn't care. God's kind of like an indulgent grandparent, don't you think? License will destroy your testimony, will destroy your impact, and your usefulness will be diluted. Now, that's the extreme that he addresses in Romans 6. But both extremes will destroy your joy in receiving God's salvation by grace. 
Now, just to simplify where we are going in Romans 6, there are two main questions. I laid them out in your bulletin notes. But there are two main questions that sort of divide up the chapter. The two questions are in verses 1 and verse 15. Romans 6, 1, shall I continue in sin? That is, shall we remain and shall I remain in the present state out of which I have been saved? Shall I stay there? But this is what we are daily to be emerging from. You've been saved out of death to life. Don't stay in the coffin. Now, verse 15 says, says, asks another question that's like it, but slightly different. Shall we sin? That is, shall I, now that I've emerged from it, shall I return to it from time to time for a little vacation from God? Shall I return to my former state out of which I was saved? This is what we don't want to return to. Again, you have been saved out of death to life. Don't return to the coffin for a visit. So first, get out of the coffin. And secondly, don't go back to it just for a weekend. The illustration in verses 1 through 14, the first question, the illustration there is the illustration of baptism. And that's a term of our identity with Christ. The illustration in verses 15 and following is the illustration of slavery. And that's a term of our belonging. But in the sense of, What master do you choose to serve now that you have been set free in that sense? And that that's where we'll be going later on, but not today. Now, we have been in Romans 6, 1 through 14 before. Lewis has uh, led us in two excellent studies covering this. And the last one he did was Father's Day. And, And by the way, dads, if you haven't heard that message, that Father's Day message, Go back on the church website. You need to listen to that every few weeks or so. It was just an amazing challenge. So you need, you need to take, take a listen to that and, and, get it, and, and get that reminder sealed into your hearts. But it's been several weeks since then. And, and, the, and the principles that are laid out here are too important not to pick them up as we re-emerge, our, immerse ourselves. Uh, and immersion is a good term here today, by the way, as we re-immerse ourselves into, into Romans 6. So let's pick up the thought again at verse 20. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It doesn't say where sin increased, grace matched it. Checkmate. So you, I raise you so much. I see, you know, is that is God is grace seeing sin? Is it checking it? If you follow the logic of that statement in the wrong direction, distorting salvation by grace through faith, then these objections can be raised. What he said is where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul's dealt with these objections and 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 somebody might say, okay. Well, here's this first objection. The more I sin, the more of God's grace I activate. Okay? The more I sin, the more of God's grace I activate. Grace gone wild. Since grace always exceeds sin, then the greater the sin, even greater the grace. You got it? That's how that works. I'm doing God a favor by sinning. But this is crazy talk. 
Satan always tries to promote evil by distorting God's good gifts. Now, before we look at his response, I want to say this. And please get this. it, It is so neat. If the gospel that we share with people isn't capable of this type of misunderstanding, that is, if the good news doesn't seem too good to be true, then we're not sharing the good news. It should seem too good to be true. In fact, this question could never have been raised if the gospel were any kind of salvation by works, right? This question could never be raised if you could lose your salvation by future sin, right? So, here's the question. Should we maximize grace by sinning all the more? How does Paul respond? Well, he doesn't soften or dilute what he's been teaching. He doubles down on it. First, there's just the flat-out denial of this train of thought. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. And we've seen that phrase before. What do the British say? How do they translate it? What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. Oh, you're rusty. May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. And, and the question, the point is, it, the question is just preposterous. <clears throat> it's even repulsive. You know, that how could we possibly think that God would save us in order so that we could sin more freely? Uh, that makes no sense whatsoever. And his answer continues, and he offers these three perspectives, and I laid them out in your notes. First of all, the first perspective is this. It has to do with what we know about being baptized into Christ. There are several verbs of knowing that are critical to this explanation. In verse 3, do you not know? In verse 6, knowing this. In verse 9, knowing. In verse 11, consider or reckon, which is the, the same Greek word as our, is the word for, uh, from which we get the word logic. Think this through. Verse 16, do you not know? Biblical knowledge is based upon biblical truth. Scriptural uh, growing as a, as a believer is anchored in scriptural truth as a basis for our belief. And that is true all through the Bible. Ephesians 1, that we would grow in the knowledge of him. Colossians 2, that we be established in faith as we were instructed, that is, in the truth the true knowledge. Second Peter one, multiply grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God through the true knowledge of him who called us. Second Peter uh, one, verse 12. I want to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth that is which is present with you. I'm stirring you up by way of a reminder. I want you to call these things to mind. And later on in Romans 12, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There are certain things that we know, and he wants to make sure that we understand them clearly because the ways in which, to, to the extent that we understand them clearly, we see them the way that God sees them, and that should change the way that we live, the way that we think. How do we, what are we to know? And he begins by saying in verse 2 that we died to sin. And the, and the imagery here is very, very graphic, actually. We died to sin. What are some of the chronic sins that might 
pop up in a Christian life? Just um, this is the audience participation. What are some chronic sins? Anger. What's another one? Pride. What's another one? Shame, guilt. Okay, there are, we could have a pretty good list, couldn't we? So let's say that we've got a corpse laid out, and you walk up to that corpse, and you say, you know, you don't look so tough. And you want to slap them around a little bit. You got to, that corpse has a problem with anger. Is the corpse going to respond? Let's say the corpse. Let's say that there's a problem with pornography, and and you take a Playboy centerfold and show it to the corpse. How does the corpse respond? Let's say that the cor- that the corpse had had a problem with um, pride, and you walk up to the corpse and say, "You look so natural. You're looking so good. Like this is the best I've ever seen you look." really living so <clears throat> how does the corpse going to respond the corpse doesn't respond the corpse is dead to those things now that's actually the idea of what he means you have died to those things you're dead to them and our problem is we want to resurrect that which god has killed what god has put to death now, his illustration here is baptism. And he picks that up in verse 3. And, and, and baptism illustrates this death to the old self. But it also contains a greater truth that we're raised to a new identity in Christ. Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The word baptize is not a translation uh, when when the word baptize, when the English versions of the Greek New Testament were translated, we didn't really have an English. Well, they, we did have an English word. It was the word immerse. But the translators didn't want to use that. So they coined a new word. And the Greek word was baptizo. And so they just transliterated it letter for letter over into English. And we had a new word, baptize. So... Uh, but the idea of, of the word was to submerge, to dip, to plunge, to immerse. And, and it was used outside the Bible of a ship that was sinking in water. It was also used outside the Bible of a, of a fuller, someone who would dye cloth. He would immerse that which was to be dyed. He would immerse that object into the dye and pull it out. And it took on the new identity of that into which it had been immersed. You have been baptized into Christ. You take on the identity of Christ. That's the idea behind the term. In a New Testament, the baptism is a symbol of what Jesus did for our salvation. Baptism doesn't save us. It's a symbol of salvation received by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it's referred to as believers baptism. That's why we don't practice baptism uh, in, in this church. We don't practice baptism on infants because they don't they haven't had the opportunity to believe in Jesus as their savior. Now, baptism is a symbol of our salvation, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. But I want to make a, a subtle distinction here. It's not only immersion into Christ. It's also immersion. Emerging from Okay, Um, immersion alone is called drowning. Do you baptize by immersion? 
Yes, but. So we also want to have immersion. <laughs> we come forth. And it pictures the resurrection coming up out of the water. Paul's point has to do with immersion into newness of life in Christ. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And, and the contrast is, in Christ we died to sin once for all. But now, in resurrection, we are to walk in him. And the resurrected life, the death was a one-time event. That's when we were saved by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We were baptized into his death. And his righteousness was imputed to us so that as we emerge from that, we don't stay down in there. We emerge from that and we're resurrected with him in newness of life. We walk. It's an ongoing process. So a one time event and then an ongoing process of walking with him in newness of life. Not a one time thing. It's a daily thing. We put on our we, we take up our cross daily and follow him. Verse 5 says, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You get it? You are in Christ. And that and what happened to Christ and his death and burial happened to you. What happened to Christ and his resurrection happened to you. And here's the significance of dying with Christ. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And done away with doesn't mean that our bodies are no longer. Well, look, just a couple of points to clarify. First of all, done away with is is actually the same term that's used back in chapter three, verse three, where that sin would be nullified. That is rendered inoperative. And the body of sin, it doesn't mean that our bodies, our physical bodies are intrinsically sinful. What it means is that the, honestly, that the body is the instrument through which the instrument He's going to pick up on that word a little bit. The instrument through which we sin. So the body of sin is to be nullified. So that, that's the point as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That it might be nullified. Rendered powerless. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. You have been released. You no longer have to sin. You have been set free. The prison door is unlocked. Don't stay in the cell. The stone of the tomb has been rolled away. Don't stay in the tomb. The coffin has been opened. Don't stay in the coffin. John 8, 36. If the son makes you free, you are free indeed. So being declared righteous or justified means that you have been freed from sin. But not freed to sin. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful? What that means is I now no longer sin. Oh, but wait a minute. My body of sin doesn't seem to be quite as powerless as I think it should be. Or as this would seem to indicate that it, my body of sin seems sometimes to be pretty powerful. How about yours? So, there's more to, the, to this equation. 
Here's how we're to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that's another knowing verb, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. No long death, no longer is master over him for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so. Consider yourselves, and as Lewis pointed out, this is the first imperative verb in Romans 6. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying, know this, as if it were truth to be gained. What he is saying is that this is a fact to be believed. This is the truth. Do you believe God when he tells you who you are? Who are you? Second Corinthians 517 tells us that in Christ we are new creatures. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new creatures in Christ. You are a person who has died to sin. You are a person who was buried with Christ. You are a person who was raised with Christ. You are a person who's no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free. The shackles are off. Now you can still sit there if you want to, but you no longer have to wear those shackles. While we were dead to sin, The problem is sin is not dead to us. Sin wants to reign over you, but it no longer has authority over you because where there is no penalty. There is no authority. That'd be something really good for school systems to learn where there is no penalty. There is no authority. There's no leverage. Where there is no penalty, there's no authority. The wages of sin is death. The penalty was paid in Jesus Christ. But thank God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it is possible to continue in sin. But if you're thinking rightly, it's unthinkable. He's not saying. Now, this is how you are to pretend you are so that you really, 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 really try hard to see yourself in the mirror this way. No, he's saying this is how you are. And you need to believe this. You need to accept that God is telling you this. And if you don't see it, you need to get a different mirror. This is not possibility thinking where you try to create a reality by your faith and your thoughts. This is saying God said it is finished. You don't cause it. God does. He began a good work in you and he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. A few, few weeks ago, I told you about, uh, we, we were, Betsy and I were just back from Pennsylvania from our annual trek uh, with the Officers Christian Fellowship. And uh, uh, as you know, we've been teaching Bible for the career military group for um, 34 years now, uh, for a week each summer, and, and love it very dearly, and love that the relationships that we've built there over the years. And we've become quite close to many of those folks. Uh, they have a little pond there. We baptize people there. We've performed some weddings among that group. Um, and uh, I, I told you about this about two or three years ago. Uh, there was a young man that uh, Betsy and I, we, we saw them. We saw him with his eyes on a young lady who was on staff. And then we saw them get married. And we saw and we began we continued a relationship for about 25 years with them. And uh, we became quite close. And uh, Eric was uh, he, he was a young colonel. At um, West Point, he headed the research. His, his PhD was in um, 
psychology, been in leadership research. And uh, he headed the research leadership program, research leadership program, yeah, at West Point. And they know leadership there. So um, he was over that. And uh, he was in his 40s uh, when he got cancer. And uh, um, he, um, his, his few week saga, because of his physical condition, uh, he, he lived for 14 months. Uh, not just a few weeks, but um, he had asked me to be with him at his death and uh, and then to conduct his funeral. So he called me and said, uh, Gary, they said, um, the doctors told me I'll have about, about a week. Uh, can you come? So I did. Uh, I arrived there a couple of days, well, about three days later, and he had six days, not a week. Uh, he went to be with the Lord, and then uh, the, the body was transported back to West Point, and Betsy and I went up together and uh, conducted the funeral uh, there in the West Point Chapel. And it was just, uh, it was actually a wonderful celebration of his testimony. Um, but here's here's the part of, and, and some, I've shared with you some of Eric's story uh, in, in the past, but here's part of it I don't think I've shared with you. Um, my part was in the chapel. There were, there were about 800 people there for his funeral. And, uh, you know, it was really a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. The, the th- first three rows were the generals. <laughs> and I'm just right there together. And then there's a bunch of stars right here. And then, uh, then everybody else. And opportunity to, uh, to clearly talk about what Jesus Christ meant to him. No restraints. And then there was the graveside service. And at the graveside service there in the West Point grounds, uh, that service was, I did not conduct that. That was conducted by a chaplain who was a, uh, also a, another friend named Mark Gautier. And uh, after Mark finished with his remarks, you know how they take the, fold, the, they take the flag that's over the casket and fold it. Well, the, the, there was a young lieutenant in charge of the burial detail, and he took the, fold, the, the, the flag and folded it and then uh, handed it to uh, uh, Gigi, Eric's wife. But what they do there at West Point is that every member of the immediate family gets a flag. But the other flags are already folded. So what they do, just as the first flag was over the casket, they take the other flags and they touch them to the casket and then give it to the family member. You understand what I'm saying? So every family member gets a flag. Well, after the first flag was folded, the young lieutenant took the second flag and walked over to the casket to touch it to it, and he disappeared. You know that green stuff that they stretch over that looks like AstroTurf? Well, they stretched it over an empty space, and that young man disappeared under Eric's coffin. And uh, there was just a gasp. And I was, Gigi was right in front of me and Betsy, uh, and Gigi started shaking. And and I knew she's not crying. (laughs) Eric was a huge practical joker. 
And she was thinking how much he would have loved this. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, the young man was fine. Okay? Um, but, um, so, but he, you know, and, and to his credit, he kept the flag uh, clean. <laughs> and he was, he was pulled out by a colonel and a general. And there, and there had to be some point at which he thought, do I really want to come out? <laughs> so, if you think about it, but it, you know, the, for the lieutenant not to come out was unthinkable. If you're alive, you come out of the grave. <laughs> if you're alive, you don't stay there. If you're dead, you don't have a choice. So the difference was the lieutenant was alive. He was scratched. Uh, his pride was wounded. He was embarrassed. And probably for the rest of his career, oh, you're the one. <laughs> but he had to come out because he wasn't dead. He was alive. To use a biblical example, when Jesus told Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, Lazarus could have decided, you know, I like the tomb. I think I want to stay here for a while. He could. What if what if he if he'd said, you know, I, I could decorate it a bit, make it look kind of nice, put a table over there. Lazy boy. What if Jesus had said, Lazarus, come forth and Lazarus called out. It's OK. I'm alive, but I think I'll stay here for a while. That was just unthinkable. Lazarus was alive, not dead. Or moving ahead to the last half of Romans 6. If you say, now that I'm saved, I'm free to sin, you must understand God's freedom. When Jesus commanded Lazarus to be unwrapped. What if Lazarus had said, you know, I think I like these new grave clothes. I'd like to keep them. I'll, I'll be... It'll, it'll be a fashion statement. I'll call it goth. I'd like to keep these clothes. Maybe I'll keep a lease on the tomb and return there for weekend getaways. I'll, re I'll want to return to the life of death from time to time. What? The life of death? Because that's what it is. So we, we've talked about sin being illogical before from the standpoint of consequences because never before have I ever regretted an act of obedience Never before have I ever not regretted an act of disobedience. Sin's not logical. It makes no sense. And he's wanting us to get our thinking right about this. He wants this. He wants sin is illogical from the standpoint of our identity. You're acting against who what you know to be factually true. Instead, verses 12 and 13, we're to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, weapons of righteousness. Therefore, do not let sin reign, because sin wants to reign, in your mortal body so that you can obey its lust. Do not go on presenting your member, the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And those are present progressive verbs. Just keep on doing that. Keep on doing it. It's a daily process. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily decision. As one 
scholar put it, every morning you should be having a private funeral service. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your body is an, in, is an instrument. It's, an, it's a weapon. That's what, another term for the Greek word. You impact the world that you inhabit. Do you impact it for life or for death? So today, Lord, I give you my feet, my hands, my eyes, my ears, my mouth. Kind of like putting on the armor of God, isn't it? Lord, I give you today, I give you my salary. I give you my job. I give you my family. I give you my health. I give you my dreams and conform them, Lord, to your will. Verse 14 says, for sin will not be, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, no, consider, present. This is just re-entry into what we've already studied in Romans 6. All of this is about who we are. Truths that we need to know and to eternalize, internalize, leading to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That we're to be living sacrifices, transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we'll prove that which is... Uh, what the will of God is that which is good and perfect and excellent. All of this has to do with deliverance from the power of sin. But we also are moving towards a place where as we grow in Christ, we are to be delivered from the daily presence of sin. So don't look God in the eye and say to him, thank you for your grace. I appreciate the grace and the forgiveness. But now that I've been forgiven, I want to move into a works relationship with you. No. On the other hand, don't distort his grace and take advantage of it by we are saved by grace and we grow by grace. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great preacher of a generation ago, gave this illustration. It's not the analogy is not a perfect analogy, but it's clear. Let's say that a widower. Has two small children and he hires a housekeeper to take care of his children. He tells her what to cook. He tells her how to clean house. How he wants it done, how he wants the children dressed, what he wants their schedules to be like. And she follows the rules, the law. From time to time, he changes what he wants her to do, maybe. Uh, and she does what he wants to have changed. But over time, let's say that they fall in love and get married. So the widower mar marries the housekeeper. But now their husband and wife, their identity is different. Their relationship has changed. It's drastically different. And now they delight to please each other. While she may be doing the same things that she was doing before, she now does them out of love, not out of duty. Out of grace, not out of law. And in fact, she may do them even more diligently than before because she loves more deeply. She knows in a deeper way and in a different way. Likewise, believers may fulfill even the law more carefully. Not because we have to, because we love him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God 
as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for grace. And we ask, Lord, that we would be awed by what you have done. We would never take it for granted. And Lord, that we would live out the reality of who you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.